Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of God, Part 8. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Well, I um, have to apologize for the laryngitis that I have this morning. I'm going to do my best to croak through this lecture this morning. I've been teaching all day Friday and all day Saturday, and despite all of my tricks, um, I didn't manage to, to get through without uh, becoming hoarse. So you'll have to kindly bear with me this morning. I'm going to get some help from uh, Bobby reading the scripture, so at least that will be clear. The class that I've been teaching over the weekend dealt with three of the divine attributes, God's aseity, God's eternity, and God's omniscience. Uh, two of those we've already discussed in this class. Today we turn to a third attribute of God, which is his omnipresence. And we want to look first at some scriptural data concerning God's omnipresence. So, Bobby, um, the first point that we want to make is that according to scripture, God's presence is everywhere. And Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12 are the, is the passage I want you to read. Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So God is everywhere present. Uh, there's nowhere that the psalmist can go where he can escape God's presence from the realms of the underworld in Sheol to the highest heaven or the farthest part of the sea. God is there. Also, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Okay, so here uh, God says, I'm not just a localized deity, uh, a God at hand like the deities of Israel's neighbors. He says, do I not fill heaven and earth? God is everywhere present. Second point um, is that God does not dwell in a localized building. God does not dwell in a localized building. Look at 1 Kings 8.23, which as I recall is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 23. And said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. What's the verse 24 say? Oh, is it 27? Yes, you're right, 27. I think I misread my own handwriting. I thought the semicolon was the lower part of a three. It's 827, go ahead. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, 
how much less this house that I have built. Yeah, that's the verse I was looking for. There, Solomon in dedicating the temple says, heaven and earth can't contain God, much less this temple. Um, he recognizes that God doesn't just dwell inside the temple in a local building. Also look in the New Testament at Acts 17, verses 24 and 28a. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 28a, which is Paul's address on the Areopagus in Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. In 28a, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now the backdrop of that speech is the temple to Athena, which was up on the Acropolis behind Paul on Mars Hill and speaking to these Athenians in front of this incredible temple um, filled with a 60-foot tall statue of Athena, a man could stand in her hand. Um, he says, God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands, uh, nor is he served by human hands. Um, for in him we live and move and have our being. What a contrast to uh, pagan deities. Um, God isn't just in a local building of some sort. So uh, any comment from anyone on the scriptural data pertinent to divine omnipresence? Yes, Kurt. Can we get the mic to Kurt so we can hear him? Yes, is there any comparison to other deities in and around Israel that made the same claim? Or is Jehovah the first God to make the claim to be omnipresent? Well, I don't claim to be a scholar in ancient comparative religions. But so far as I know, the polytheistic gods of these ancient religions were not omnipresent. As far as I know, they were very localized and indeed often had material bodies and so could not be uh, present throughout all of space. So I'm not aware of any analogy to the worship of Yahweh, of, of Israel's God in this sense. It's, I think it's quite unusual. So what effect did it have then on their worship that differentiated them from those around them if they worshiped the God that was well, omnipresent? Well, certainly one of the implications of it would be a rejection of idolatry because the pagan idols were so obviously just finite, local deities that Israel found laughable. If you read Isaiah's critique of idol worship, it's just biting satire. He just mocks the idea of an idol. Now that would be partly a reflection of God's incorporeality compared to the idols, but also I think of omnipresence. Um, think of the psalmist where he thinks of God as everywhere and there's nowhere he can go where he could escape God's presence. That's very different, I think, than these pagan uh, gods and pagan religion. You know, one thinks of Job, or not Job, I mean uh, Jonah in this connection where Jonah did try to escape from the Lord in this way, taking the ship to Tarshish and trying to flee God's presence. Of course, he was unable to. God was, was right there and 
corralling him. Any other comments? Yes, Bob. Bill, would you deal with the uh, God's presence in the temple in Israel on the Temple Mount where he filled the temple? And yes. You do have this idea of the Shekinah glory of God where there is a special manifestation of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. But that shouldn't be thought in light of the verses we've read to exhaust God's presence. It's not as though he were there and there alone. There was a special manifestation of God in the Holy of Holies, but it, it, uh, it didn't exhaust his presence. Steve. I was just going to comment on these other gods that were around at that time. I think when it says now there's no intermediary between God and man but the man Christ, you know? Prior to that, other beings were inserting themselves between God and man. That's part of the, the depravity we'd fallen to. And that's mm -hmm. what other religions were. Well, I mean, some of these other, yes, there were priests, certainly, that mediated between, for example, Zeus and, and people. But, I mean, these gods themselves were very finite, limited and, beings. And I, I'm, I'm attributing to they were the ones who were mediating between. Well, they were they inserting themselves there wasn't any higher god trying to take beyond the place. them. Oh, okay, take, taking the place of God, yes. But it's not as though Zeus and Mercury and um, these other deities were mediators to some higher being. They, they were it. And it was just a sort of race of supermen that existed in addition to human beings. All right, well, let's do a little systematic thinking about God's omnipresence. It seems to me that there are two opposite errors that need to be avoided with respect to God's relationship to space. First of all, we should not think of God as localized in an earthly spot. Um, and that includes the church. When we say sometimes that the church is God's house, we don't mean that in the sense that God's pr presence is there in some way that he's not present elsewhere. Uh, we could speak of the church building as God's house in the sense that it's set apart for God. It is a sacred site dedicated to the Lord and his worship. Um, but there aren't sacred spots in the world in earth, on earth where God is especially present um, uh, in a local kind of way. God is present uh, everywhere. The opposite error would be to think that God is localized in heaven. I'm amazed often in talking even with adult Christians who think God is in heaven sitting on a throne, that he's some sort of humanoid being that's up there uh, in heaven and, and is localized there. And that would be the opposite mistake. Um, the doctrine of God's omnipresence says that God is everywhere presence. He, as, as Solomon says, he fills heaven and earth, or, or Jeremiah says. Um, Solomon says, heaven and earth cannot contain thee. Um, so that these opposite errors need to be avoided. We shouldn't think of God as localized in an earthly place, but neither should we think of him as localized in heaven. So how does God relate to space? Well, in the same way that the Bible is underdeterminative with respect to God's relationship to time, it is also underdeterminative with regard to God's relationship to space. That is to say, it's not clear whether we should think of God 
as existing everywhere in space or whether we should think of him as transcending space altogether. Recall those two different views of God's relationship to time. Does God exist at every time that there is? Or does God completely transcend time and not exist in any uh, sense in the temporal dimension? Similarly, the question here with respect to space is, uh, is God everywhere in space or does God transcend space altogether? Well, now certainly the Bible uh, speaks as though God is everywhere in space. Um, Think of Psalm 139 again, uh, that God is everywhere in space. But um, traditionally Christian theology hasn't understood God to be um, diffused throughout space, um, but rather to transcend space altogether. Now, since God is spirit, that is to say he is incorporeal, God does not have a body. So obviously he's not in space in the sense of having extension, uh, being uh, a three-dimensional object. But neither should we think of God as some sort of uh, invisible ether or vapor that is spread throughout space um, so that we are, so to speak, moving through God as we move about in the world. This would have, I think, a number of um, mistaken consequences. It would mean, for example, that if the universe is finite, then God is finite because God would only fill the finite universe, the finite space that there is, and it certainly is possible that the universe in space is finite, in which case God would be finite, not infinite. Also, this conception of God is spread out like an invisible ether would mean that God is not entirely present at every point in space. It would mean there's sort of like a portion of God inside my cup of tea, and then the rest of him is outside, or there's a a certain cubic amount of God in this room, um, but then the rest of it is outside of the room, and that surely isn't correct. What one would want to say is that God is entirely present everywhere in space. So if God exists in space, he would have to be somehow um, related to the physical universe in such a way that he would be wholly present at every point in space, um, rather than just partially present at every point in space. Now there is an analogy to this, and that would be the way in which my soul is present in my body. Um, I am a body-soul composite, and my soul seems to be present everywhere in my body. It's not as though my soul exists in my head, in my brain, or in my heart, or some other part of my body, nor is my soul spread throughout my body like a ghost where a part of it is in my arm and a part of it is in my other arm or in my leg. Rather, the union of the soul with the body would be that somehow, if the soul is in the body, it is everywhere present, wholly in the body. The Um, 
the soul would not be spread out or diffused throughout the body, but wholly present at every point in the body. And maybe one could say that that's the way in which God is related to the universe, related to to space, that as the soul inhabits the body in such a way that it is wholly present at every point in the body, so God um, is in the world in such a way that he is wholly present at every place in space. Now, certainly the biblical view uh, avoids any suggestion that the universe or the world is God's body. God is incorporeal. God doesn't have a body. But the point would be that perhaps he's present in the world in an analogous way in which my soul is present in my body. The difference between my soul's union with my body and God's presence in the world is that the world does not serve God as a sort of sense organ by means of which God knows what is happening in the world. Um, God isn't dependent upon the world for his knowledge of what's happening in the way that my soul is dependent upon my eyes and my ears and my uh, taste and, and so forth for navigating the world and sensing the world. So that the world is not the body of God. That analogy fails um, in view of the fact that God doesn't use the world as a sort of sense organ in the way that the soul uses the body to sense what is happening in the world. But perhaps one could say that uh, even though the world is not God's body, then nevertheless God is wholly present at every point in space in the way in which the soul is present at every place in the body. And some traditional medieval theologians like Anselm actually did endorse this concept of God's omnipresence, and they called it the immensity of God. It's not the same exactly as omnipresence, um, but God's immensity connoted that God is wholly present at every point in space. He is there in a literal sense. So that in that sense, we really are in God. Um, As Paul says in the verse from Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. This would be the notion of God's immensity. So um, this is uh, an element in traditional theology. On the other hand, God is also thought to transcend space. Um, Since God is the creator of the universe, um, there is a state of affairs of the actual world of God existing alone um, without time or space. Since God is not a physical object, um, his existence doesn't require space. So if we think of God, quote unquote, prior to creation, or without the world, God would exist um, without space. He would would, uh, be spaceless. There would be no space. Space would come into being when God creates the physical world. Uh, And perhaps, as I've suggested, time as well comes into existence at that point, that at the moment of creation, both time and space come to exist. Now, the question would be, In creating space, does God then enter into space? 
in the way that I've argued that his creation of time would involve his entering into time. You remember I argued that in virtue of God's changing relations with the temporal world and in virtue of his knowledge of tensed facts like what time it is now, if God creates time, then he is immediately drawn into time and so uh, becomes temporal at that point. Is there anything analogous to that with respect to creating space? Well, I can't see that there is. I don't see that there's anything about the creation of space that would quote unquote spatialize God. Why? Well, because although creation is a temporal act, creation isn't a spatial act. It's not an act like bumping into something or pushing something or moving something. All of those would require that the cause be in space. If you bump or push something, the cause must be in space. But the creation of space, it seems to me, isn't itself a spatial act. So that there isn't anything about uh, creation that would require God to enter into space at that time. And so I'm more inclined to the view to say that God simply transcends space. Um, and in that case, what omnipresence amounts to is that God is cognizant of and causally active at every point in space. That's what omnipresence means. It doesn't mean that God is literally in space. God transcends space. But he knows what is happening at every point in space, and he is causally active at every point in space, causing the things to happen there and causally sustaining them in existence. So God, on this conception, is a non-spatial, uh, transcendent, infinite mind who is conscious of and active at every point in space. Any discussion of that analysis of God's relationship to space? Yes, Ben. Um, when we keep referring to God here, are we talking about God the Father as that person of the Trinity? And are you making a differentiation between God the Father's omnipresence versus the Holy Spirit? Because I would think that there's certain places where we could say the Holy Spirit is not, right? Yeah. It's not in some people. It is I was so. speaking of God with respect to the whole Godhead. Um, but you're, you're right. There are passages in the book of Acts where, for example, with Cornelius' household, it says the, the Spirit fell upon them. Uh, it sounds like a very physical act almost. And then this whole notion of being filled with the Holy Spirit um, sounds in many cases like the Holy Spirit actually comes to indwell a person and live in him. And on the view I'm suggesting, that would be to say that the Holy Spirit produces certain causal effects there, like glossolalia, uh, speaking in tongues, I mean, or regeneration, uh, being born again to a new life. But it wouldn't be interpreted literally as that God is like um, a sort of a spirit, like a, a, I almost hate the comparison, but the way demonic possession would be, where this, this demon literally inhabits the person's body and, uh, and controls him and takes over. It, it would be different than that. 
Um, so I, I think it's an open question, Ben, but uh, on the view that I've suggested, it, it wouldn't be a sort of literal uh, spatial presence. Gotcha. One other really quick question about when um, he, I guess an issue with him coming into space when he creates it, wouldn't partially an issue of that be he's also fully present in another realm, the spiritual realm of heaven, when he created that? Then you'd have to say, well, if, the, if he was composed, if his body was the universe, it seems like you'd have to go beyond that to also his presence being not in the universe, but the but in the yeah, heavenly realm I mean, of heaven as well. I, right? I think that someone like Anselm would combine these two views, that God is both transcendent um, in the sense that, say the universe is finite. God is not finite, even though uh, he's immense. Um, so that God would be both immense in the sense that he's wholly present at every point in space, but then also he would be causally active at and cognizant of every point in space and wouldn't be exhausted, so to speak, by his presence in space. I think someone like Ansel would want to combine these two views, and I think that deserves um, more thought. This is an area that is very underexplored in Christian philosophy today. There have been lots of philosophers writing on God and time, but almost no one is working on God and space. So if you're a young uh, philosophy student thinking of what would be a good doctoral dissertation topic, uh, here is one where you can, uh, I think, make a real contribution. Uh, several times in Scripture, um, God's told the sinners, the evil people, to depart from Him, and, and to you know, and people have used that as a as a way to say that hell is the a place from which God has uh, removed His presence. What do you think about that? That's that's a wonderful question. The doctrine of omnipresence would say that God is present in hell. He's he, if if He were not causally active there and and uh, cognizant of what's happening there hell would just be annihilated. It wouldn't exist apart from God's sustaining presence. So God is certainly present in hell. But I think what the scripture means when it says that these persons are separated from the face of the Lord or God's presence is speaking of a relational presence. Um, he may be there, but they're not related to him. So they have no consciousness of him, no experience of him, it would be as though God were utterly absent to them, but he would be ontologically or metaphysically present, but not relationally present. Yeah, let's take Mark and then Bob. I like the idea of putting doctoral, new doctoral students to work. Good. So my question is, <laughs> um, if God's causally active in every point, what consequences might that have for the proposal of theistic evolution? Uh-huh. Are you asking me or these doctoral candidates? <laughs> uh, yes, you, if for anything you know or anything you think uh, could well, be explored or worked on. I think on. this raises the question, Mark, of um, miracles. When I say God is causally active at every point in space, I'm not necessarily saying miraculously. Um, when we get to the doctrine of divine providence, and talk about God's relationship to the world, I think we'll see that God is causally active in everything that happens in the world, 
but he can work through the secondary causes rather than immediately in a sort of miraculous way. And we don't want to maintain that God works in the world only in a kind of immediate miraculous way. That is a doctrine called occasionalism, which was held to by certain medieval Islamic philosophers and then in modern Western philosophy by a French philosopher, Nicolas Malbranche. Um, what they said was that when you hold the match to the cotton and the cotton combusts and turns black and smoldering, the fire doesn't really cause the cotton to combust. What happens is that merely on the occasion of the fire coming into proximity with the cotton, God causes the cotton to combust. So that really secondary, uh, there are no secondary causes. Things in the universe don't cause anything. Everything is caused by God. And you can see how that would fit in with Islamic uh, determinism and fatalism. Um, uh, and we don't want to affirm that. I think we want to affirm that God has created things in the world that have causal powers. And God gives them a certain autonomy to produce their effects. And he cooperates along with them to make those effects. He works through secondary causes. So with respect to evolution, the question would be, did God choose to work through the means of random mutation and natural selection to bring about biological complexity? Or did he intervene miraculously to produce new life forms without the instrumentality of secondary causes? And, and that would be a, a, a different question. Bob, did you want to contribute? Uh, it seems like in dealing with the Godhead, we've uh, talked about God the Father. You dealt with the Holy Spirit a little bit. But uh, when we deal with uh, Jesus Christ and his resurrected uh, glorified body, which we know has certain uh, right. capabilities that uh, we don't have with these bodies, uh, but I would address it to the idea of uh, the Catholic view of transubstantiation, where they have the Eucharistic celebration and Christ believing the actual change. And you talked about that yes. under the doctrine of Christ. Yes. But the idea of the uh, Christ being able to be localized, point localized, possibly around the world mm. at the same time in all of these Eucharistic uh, celebrations. Yeah, Bob is absolutely correct to draw our attention to these debates over the real presence in the sacraments. This is where medieval theologians reflected most upon God's relationship to space, is not in some abstract philosophical sense, but in the context of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist. And they distinguished all of these different ways in which something could be present in space and um, argued that Christ's body could be uh, present in this very special way in the Eucharist that was different than the way, say, a chair or a table is present. So you're, you're absolutely right in saying that this, it, these debates are, are very relevant to the issue here. Well, let me just um, wrap up this morning by saying whatever view you take of God's relationship to space, I think we can all agree on the fundamental point that the omnipresence of God means that there is no place to which God's knowledge and power do not extend. That would be common coin 
regardless of which view you take. There is no place to which God's knowledge and power do not extend. Now in our next class, we'll look at what application this truth has to our personal lives. The copyright for the content of this program is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.